Raturstra, this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Glenn Fleischman. He's a writer, a podcaster, a two-time Jeopardy winner, and you've probably seen him around Twitter as Glenn F. How's it going, Glenn? It's going great. This has been the most relaxing day I've had in a long time. Uh, so what are you up to right now? Oh, uh, I'm like, that's a, such a hard question to answer. Um, well, as I'm kind of between things and, and sorting stuff out, like I have, uh, I have some routine gigs that I work on as a freelancer, but I just came off a really large feature uh, that I, I'm writing for The Economist, and I wrote a really big first draft, and there's some things changing there about where it might run, so it's all, it's going to happen, but like I'm actually a little up in the air, but I put, um, it's, it's tricky because they pay reasonably well, but not super well. So I can devote a lot of time to it, but uh, so over the last few months, I've put in, you know, probably the equivalent of a few weeks, but in bits and pieces. And I did a trip to San Francisco to meet up with companies. Uh, it involves robotics and machine learning and deep learning and computer vision. It's a really fun story. But then I'm like, all right, uh, gotta write the draft, get the thing. I'm like, Hoo! and then they're like, oh well, it might run a little later. I'm like, oh, you know. So I got the draft done. It's huge. <laughs> They're happy, you know, with the first thing. It needs some revision. It'll get cut way down, and one part of it might even split into a separate story, which is nice. Um, but I'm still kind of recovering. I forget. Uh, I, you know, I do one of those. This is probably the longest thing I've written for them. Um, but I do a long feature for them, sometimes once or twice a year. But I usually go into it knowing more and needing to explore less. And this time, I picked a story that I was very interested in, and I had to learn so much. And my original thesis was wrong, which I was willingly accepted. <laughs> but even while I was writing it, I kept finding more nuance in in how I was tr- how I was wrong about what I thought. So, um, so I'm kind of in the uh, uh, freelance recovery mode where I'm doing my regular stuff, but trying to figure out what I'm going to plan for the next couple months. Oh, that right there led me to so many questions. Um, <laughs> first, do, okay, so when I hit projects anywhere similar to that, which I've never done anything for The Economist or anything, but when I get projects that require research and I go into learning mode and I dive into it, I tend to get overwhelmed before I get to the first draft, especially if there's no hard deadline. So do you think that having that kind of what ended up being a false deadline, but having that initial pressure to just get something down do you think that helped get you out of research and into writing? Yeah, absolutely. I, if I don't have a deadline, I'm, I, you know, other stuff takes priority. And so, and something like I've actually, you know, I've got a, a, a review for Macworld that I keep kicking down the road because they don't, I pitched it to them. They don't need it immediately. And, uh, and so it just keeps getting kicked down the road. And eventually I catch up and do those things and they're happy to have them uh, if it wasn't, you know, if it's not perishable. And then the story runs. Uh, and this, I, I did, I'm, I needed a hard stop anyway. And I wound up uh, spending a few days after what I thought was my hard stop when I got more time and then just said, okay, this is it. I'm sending you all a draft and uh, and let's talk about the draft because then we have time to sort things out. But this is a story with no bottom. Like I could have, I could spend a year. This is a book length story I'm trying to do. And I was commissioned for 3,500 words and I delivered about probably 5,500 knowing that there are some actually long sections that might just get dropped out or turned as in in one case, uh, maybe 500 to 750 words that will become a different story and then that <laughs> makes it easy to uh to drop that part out but uh computer you know deep learning is a really interesting subject i don't have the math for it so i don't i can't sit there and read the formulae and say i know what's going on so i have to approach it from understanding like looking at visuals understanding the transformations and like knowing that a mathematical transformation does x without being able to read the formula and then talking to computer scientists uh, artificial intelligence experts in this case roboticists and finding ones that are patient enough to explain things to me and then i say okay look this is how i 
see it, how I want to represent it to a general audience. Is this inaccurate? Even though it's simplified, they'll be like, oh, it's more like that. Like, what about, you know, this? They're like, yeah, that's actually it. Like, that doesn't have all the detail, but you're not saying something wrong. So a lot of this story, I would interview someone and get details and say, all right, do you think I'm totally off base? And they would, you know, or am I approaching it wrong? They say, oh, well, you know, what you're focusing too much on this one kind of algorithm or uh, whatever. I have one guy, a computer scientist, as I was leaving his office, he said, you know, all the questions you asked are on target. Like, I think what you're doing is right. And I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God. Because it's complicated enough that it would be very easy for me to misrepresent uh, part of the field even with being very conscientious, uh, without my you know, even fact checkers might not be able to come up with it because not I'm not trying to mislead, but it might actually and you know there's no cost except people in the field be like oh great the economists got you know this description of our field they explained it entirely wrong so this has been probably one of the most complicated things I've written like I wrote about Bitcoin uh, two years ago Bitcoin was much easier. Because um, <laughs> as crazy as it sounds, because it's all defined. There's like certain software. There's people involved. There's transactions. There's a lot of stuff to say about Bitcoin, but the system has very specific moving parts that you can talk about, and they're well defined. And that was um, fun. And it took enormously less time for a feature that wound up only being you know slightly smaller. I, uh, I as an aside, I, I greatly enjoyed the uh, small post you did about Derek Dollars. Oh my God, my son is <laughs> my son cracks me up. It's the econ the uh, uh, the economy of the schoolhouse. Uh, strange, strangely related fact is Rex Stout. Uh, my son's name is Rex, and he's named in part for uh, my wife and I like the novels of Rex Stout, whose detective was Nero Wolf, the corpulent detective who raised orchids and was only detective in order to make enough money to pay for his uh, midtown Manhattan uh, house and uh, his private orchid collection and, and a caretaker. Um, so Rex Stout and uh, and uh, uh, the uh, speak singer Rex Harrison. We kind of both like the Rex name, and um, so the the connection is Rex Stout. One of the things he did early in his career is he developed a banking system for elementary schools so kids could do savings. And uh, I know it's a very tangential thing, but it was very funny when my Rex starts telling me about a, a economic system of barter that they have developed in their school completely privately, and and without a uh, uh, large foundation in economics. I think it was very interesting. Kids develop their own economics. Everything is value. It teaches you economics is an inherent part of culture. And of course, it's shaped by the knowledge of whatever economic system you're in. But this just arose. There are no, there are no parents or teachers or, or any adult supervision. The kids developed a, a working, very weird economy uh, that evolved Derek dollars. <laughs> but essentially very capitalist. Like yeah, it was what? highly influenced by oh, yeah. you know, an upbringing within a capitalist society. It's a sweatshop. Yeah. Uh, although, but but there's no coercion. This is the thing about Bitcoin that's fascinating. Bitcoin is a is a currency without coercion, because if you think about it, and this is a bit of Marxist theology or, or sorry ideology, I think is is uh, we trust in the dollar because the U.S. government has a big military. Like, I mean, that's I'm simplifying, but at some level. You take that the dollar is backed by the fact the United States has an integrity, that it's not going away. And the reason it's not going away is it can defend itself, right? So, you know, that's one view. So you could say Bitcoin is interesting because there's no government behind it. There's nothing behind it that guarantees it retains any value. Probably the first currency in existence that hasn't depended on some kind of structure of power. And so the Derek dollars that my son and his companions, including Derek, uh, developed has no coercion. It's completely voluntary, and the dollars are not really worth anything. But they all participate, or a number of them participate in it because it was kind of a fun thing they developed and they liked. It, it was like a a game plus. I I, I very much enjoy. It. And w it, this could be a whole nother podcast. The discussion of um, kind of economics that uh, develop themselves based on human nature, almost. Yeah, I love yeah. that. 
But anyway, so in talking like your articles for The Economist, The Economist is known in my I, I guess in my opinion, The Economist is a good publication for being balanced, for taking objective views of things. So when you are doing the kind of research that you were talking about and there's this line between representing an industry and writing something that will be of interest to the general public, do you ever have to make a judgment call in your research between what's actually interesting and what is actually the focus of the industry? Oh, that's a great question because I think what I would say is the economists will often take a hard look at something. Like and all, like sometimes acerbic, so it's I think always fair, um, but it's sometimes there is sometimes bias that's expressed, and so I'm allowed to not necessarily have an editorial opinion. They they do this thing. So the Economist does this thing that's very um very British, and we don't really do in the U.S. It, it, there's like in the U.S. we have um, newspapers will do unsigned. Uh, 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 unsigned editorials, which are the editorial board, and there's you know it's the opinion of the board, and um, that's that's sort of like what leaders are in the UK, and what the Economist does is they'll take uh, six or seven stories of the week, and the editorial board or some well someone will be appointed to write it, but they're sort of expressing the will of the group will write a much more editorially minded an analytical look at the story, so you can have a new so in fact that happened with. Uh, the sharing economy. I wrote a piece um, so two years ago, about uh, two and a half years ago, that was um, about B two P, like business to personal, person to person. Like so, it had encompassed Uber, but also things like relay rides and um, the the Airbnb uh, and like tool loaning services. So kind of the whole thing, although focused on where there was monetary exchange involved, but also mentioning things like couch surfing. And uh, so it was my cover. It was a cover story in the American edition, which was great and um, cover of the technology quarterly section that that issue. And. Uh, it was very much, you know, it was objective journalism with, you know, with a tone. Like I've found this out, and Uber maybe, you know, does Uber have a place? They're skirting regulations. Uh, regulations maybe being overlooked in the regulatory situation could wind up biting some of these companies, which we're seeing happening now two years later. Uh, and uh, and some of it was positive, some of it was sort of funny. But then the leader, which was written by my editor, uh, he was appointed to write it, he wrote a leader that was much more arch about the regulation part. It was like, you know, regulations maybe standing in the way of influential new ways of uh, breaking the economy, uh, some of the, especially in countries that have more monolithic uh, economies of providing new inc incentives, and his was much more strident. Um, so part of it sometimes is we can have like a factual story that has a tone and a voice, uh, but then the leader will express like all the opinion associated. When it's like you take that part off, and I don't write the leaders; that's a staff uh, a job that they sort out in. Um, uh, there's actually a really good article in a recent New York Times because the Economist Group, 50% uh, of it, is up for sale because um, Pearson which owns Beachwood Press and a number of other publishing companies. Pearson is selling off its publication-related uh, businesses. They sold the Financial Times and a related organization. And they also own 50% of the – the Economist Group is the parent company of uh, – that publishes The Economist and its uh, analytical group called the Intelligence uh, Intelligence Intelligence Unit, I think it's called. Uh, so anyway, and the way they have – they have multiple levels of stock structure. So The Economist, even with that 50% sold, it doesn't mean some new owner comes in and they turn it into uh, – you know the New York Daily News or something. Uh, it's it's highly protected, so its journalistic operation will uh, through a trust will not be really affected, basically. Uh, but there was a really good piece in the New York Times about the kind of voice and nature of the Economist from some of the uh, former editors and some people involved, and uh, uh, it, was, it was fun to read kind of from the outside. Like one of the things they do is I never I haven't been to London, so I haven't been in these. But every Monday they have kind of a scrum. Everyone meets. 
and uh, and it's all the editors. And apparently, I'd heard this from staff inside too. It's uh, it's very consensus driven. They all meet and they hash out what the stories are going to be that run that Thursday when they go to press. They all have tons of stuff in progress, and people advocate. And so, in fact, when my uh, sharing economy story came in, it was a quiet week, which was good for me. No pope died or was elected. <laughs> There's no new war or economy collapsing, and uh, my and my editor advocated for my story being on the cover and one of the deputy editors at the time apparently had read it also and thought it was good and it became the cover story and that's kind of awesome um so that's the kind of organization it is uh too that they really have a they have a strong internal voice they have opinions but uh and that the journalism is it's not distant it's um it's told with a tone and it's told with an approach but it tries to be as uh, let's say fair and even-handed as factually accurate, and, and and so whenever any kind of inference is made, there have to be facts to back it up. Yeah, well, and that's, that's a long answer to a good question, though. <laughs> that's uh, I think that's really the essential ingredients of modern journalism is people want a voice. Blogging, the explosion of blogging has proven that people want to hear opinions, but to be able to present those with still the journalistic integrity. And to mm-hmm. separate pure opinion from actual data within the way you're talking about with leaders, I think I think that's a perfect kind of compromise with the idea of a perfectly objective writing style, which I don't think has ever really existed. Yeah, and you have to make choices. I mean, as a reporter, I... Um you know, I write lots of different kinds of reporting, and sometimes I'm writing a how-to, which sometimes involves interviewing people or, or documenting things. You know, get an Apple on the phone, get an expert in hard drive defragmentation or something. <laughs> uh, and sometimes I'm doing things, you know, like this, this piece about robotics and computer vision. It's uh, I'm talking mostly to people who are interested in it from an academic standpoint. And even when I talk to people at a company, we're talking about you know, the factual side. And then I'll do something like uh, the sharing economy where everybody I talk to, every single person has a vested interest. And I need to make sure that I'm not giving what they say too much credence relative to what it merits, but but also making sure I'm representing what they say because what they say is valid because they say it. So whether or not it's true or accurate or a good prediction, it's still something someone involved with the company says. So it has to be contextualized if it needs to be, but um, but should be represented. And yeah, I don't I don't believe in objective journalism. I believe in showing your work. Yeah. So I I can only be as objective as the amount of truth I can gather and how I interpret it. And the the choices I make, you know, what if I hadn't put Uber in that story and my editors hadn't asked me to? It's like, that would have been a ridiculous story without Uber. <laughs> but some people write these stories. I see something, uh, I don't know, what was I, I saw a story the other day where I was like, this didn't mention, I'm blanking the thing, but it was like, it omitted an entire aspect of the story that was huge, but it didn't fit the narrative. So they didn't include it. But without that, the story made no sense. And those in the know know, and those who don't are reading something that's incomplete and thinking they're reading the whole. And, you know, some of that comes from experience and some of it's like is actual maybe unintentional reporter bias saying, well, this is the part of the story I'm going to cut off. But I I wouldn't agree with that judgment. Yeah. Yeah. Because at that point, you're cable network news. (laughs) Um, So even if if it's unintentional. Yeah. How long have you been doing this? The uh, the research and writing and and what you would call journalism. Well, I uh, since I was in college, I would say like I and or even um, 
elementary school. I've been I've been writing for some kind of publication since I was probably in fifth grade. And some of it was included reporting. Like I talked to a teacher, I talked to the principal, I write something up. Um, and you know, not to extol that, but I think I didn't like at some point I was like, oh my God, I really was doing this when I was like 10. I was <laughs> writing stories and I always liked stories, but I was never good about fiction. I'm not a fiction writer. I do not have the fiction bones, but I have story bones. And when I was in college, I joined what was then a, a new weekly paper at my college it had been a daily I went to Yale the Yale Daily News is the oldest college daily it did not have a weekly at that point and I joined in the second uh, term that this uh, weekly paper existed when I got there as a freshman and I became an editor within a few weeks because they were new and I worked on that paper for most of my four years and did a lot of journalism both you know arts journalism and regular reporting and breaking news on campus and then um, had a long you know had a hi- hiatus but then I got back in through the tech side I started doing uh, reviews and uh, technical writing how-to stuff for um, Aldous magazine back when Aldous existed. <laughs> yeah. And I had a magazine. It was very fine in that, but that gave me a ratchet in. And from there, after writing for a few years in the trade press, I was able to get in the New York Times. And then that helped get me into, from that, I kind of leveraged that into some other stuff and then met an economist editor. And um, I've been writing for The Economist for over 10 years now. I've probably written written well over 400 pieces online because I was writing twice weekly for a while and I've written, I don't know, like a hundred something things that have also appeared in print or have only appeared in print. Um, I shouldn't say that everything that they've had in print now appears online, but uh, <laughs> um, it, it's great. There, I mean, it's not my, it's not where I spend all, I was spending more time when I was doing a twice weekly gig, but uh, I spend a good chunk of my time doing uh, stuff for Macworld right now, writing columns and how-tos and, uh, and, uh, uh, security stories for them, but um, but the Economist has been this great through line where I just you know I just keep pitching them, and sometimes I'm writing a ton, and sometimes uh, less. But um, it's just such a fun place to write, and they really uh, they do a very nice job of keeping me happy, which I like because I'm a freelancer, and it's really hard to keep freelancers happy because we're not in staff, we don't get benefits, we're not getting salaries, uh, you know, I'm not in the newsroom, and uh, it's been fun to write even you know several thousand miles away. It's been great to do work for them. Okay, so I'm going to tell you my impression of something, and I'm I, I can predict your response, but I want to hear it, and uh, and I want you to uh, expound on it. Mm-hmm. In looking over your body of work, I get the impression that you honestly know everything, and not in a know-it-all sort of way. It feels like you have done so much research in your lifetime that you can talk about anything. How how what's your immediate reaction to that response to your work? Well, I had a boss about twenty years ago, and uh, and then my wife later worked for this guy because she knew how to spell the word pharaoh, which is a good story. <laughs> I might get back to that story. She could spell pharaoh correctly, and he hired her. Uh, and he said to her once, you know, Glenn was a real know-it-all when he first came to work for me because I was like twenty-two or something, twenty-three. He said, "There's two things a know-it-all can do." They can either become humble or they can learn everything. Glenn decided to learn everything. <laughs> and I think it's, you know, I have a fearlessness about knowledge. If I go to a country where I don't speak the language, I will just start talking. I will read things. It will go into my brain. I will start talking to people. And my brain seems to be doing all this background processing. So I feel like I've, I've got, when I was younger, I had an almost uh, photographic memory, which is unfortunately faded over time, which is very useful to have photographic memory when you're a reporter. Um, but I feel like I, uh, it's almost like a birth affect. Like I'm lucky I was born with the brain I was because it's helped me 
um, you know, through no effort of my own. You can't, people can train their memories. I haven't had to do that. This is just a natural ability that is a birth, you know, it's a birth thing. It's like, this is how you know, people's brains fix memories in different ways. And it's been a, I think I've drifted towards a field in which that's really helped. So, um, you know, I retain so much because of that, it makes it a lot easier to learn anything because I'm not constantly having to reinforce the learning I've done. And, uh, and reading about techniques, there's all these techniques and software you can use to refresh your learning. It sort of tries to time based sometimes on theory and based on your patterns. Um, there's a good article in Wired a few years ago about a guy who wrote software for it, but he spends all of his time reinforcing his learning. So what do you do with that knowledge if that's all you're doing? Um, but I feel like uh, almost uh, there's there's areas that I reach where I'm like I cannot actually learn this. There are areas where I feel like I can't research it. So I try to be um, now that I'm a grown up in my 40s. I try not to be a know it all. I try to be the oh I think I can figure that out. I think I know who to ask and where to go or what to read. And the internet giving you everything, you have to be a good judge of what's accurate or not. Um, but I feel like it's benefited me. Um, I'm an autodidact, right? I teach myself. I was going to say that word. I teach myself. It's a great word. And so I learned it. I was like, oh, yeah, this is me. And my uh, my kids are this way, too. It's an inherent trait. My wife is largely that way. She's got a, a degree in horticulture, but she's done all these other things. And we just all, uh, you know, my son sat down with a keyboard and taught himself how to play the piano. Not well. I mean, he's not a, a sure. prodigy, but he just started playing with it. He was playing the sax, being taught in school. And he starts playing the piano. I'm like, oh, you can play the piano? He's like, well, I can, you know, I can read music and I can know which keys go with which. And if we gave him lessons, he'd probably be, probably learn pretty well because he's got an aptitude. But, uh, uh, you can't train someone to be an autodidact. That's like a, it's like a neurological structure thing that maybe gets nurtured through childhood. But it, and my parents certainly encouraged me. But it's not like a, it would be great if there's an add-on you could get. Like, oh, hey, here's your uh, here's your autodidact module. Just plug that in, <laughs> and now uh, you can teach yourself anything. It's it's just um, it's how I was born. Like yeah, I've been uh, I've been classified the same way. And uh, I mean, I was only ever taught viola and a little bit of cello when I was younger. But and. Yes, and I took piano lessons. So that that whole sentence I was about to say is just shot in the foot. But I I can play uh, like drums, guitar, bass, piano. Mm -hmm. I can't play any. I've, I've never even tried to play brass instruments. But brass but yeah, instruction sometimes there's things where it's like you cannot. My my older son, he believes he can teach himself everything or anything very quickly. And what's been good is as he's uh, almost 11, turns 11 next week, uh, as he's gotten older, he has recognized that he sometimes needs help learning how to get through the steps of things to then be able to bootstrap from there. And that's a great ability. And I feel like that's a humility I learned later in life. And uh, and that's good. Well, um, it's, foundation is essential. For, for someone to teach themselves, they at least have to have the building blocks. Right. And some people, I mean, there are geniuses out there who just, they pick up things and they're uh, I mean, unbelievable. I was reading about this, uh, New York Times had a story about this math whiz who's like one of the leading figures in mathematics now. And the guy is fascinating. He doesn't really fit all the molds. And he just, he, he just uh, didn't reason everything himself. His parents encouraged him. But from, as a, uh, from a young age, the minute he started hitting math, he could just, you know, it's just all works in his brain. His brain is practically like pre-optimized for being a mathematical genius. Well, and, and that leads to something interesting you said about how you drifted toward a field that worked with the way that you were constantly constantly absorbing knowledge. At, do you feel do you feel like you would be suited for any other line of work? Yeah, I may be unemployable sometimes. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not just self-employed. I'm unemployable. Well, I think uh, programming would probably be a good field for me. In a previous, like, uh, and, and I do a fair amount of programming, or I used to do more, and I, I am not 
great at programming. Like I picked up some Objective C, uh, you know, books at different times. I, I've never like mastered C or C plus plus or Objective C. I can do Perl, I can do PHP, I can any scripting language you throw it at me, and I can be programming in it in a very short amount of time. I do not have a like compiled language head for some reason. And I suppose if I took classes, but I've never. I feel like I would need. It's actually a great. Um, it's a great example of like the self limitation. Is I. Uh, I know I'd have to put in weeks or months to be able to get the foundational stages to feel like I could be as good in like Objective C as I can be in um, in like let's say Perl. I've been programming Perl since '94. I've been programming PHP on and off, and then I took over uh, the magazine from Marco Arman. He sold it to me, and it was the back end was all PHP, and I was able to get in there and teach myself a ton because he'd written beautiful code. I mean, he, I sort of learned from his code, <laughs> um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean it's a. Uh, um, I've gotten myself. I've gotten us off topic, but the yeah. So I mean, I could be. I think. I think if I go on a different path, I, I taught myself. Uh, this is something you know the autodidact thing. When I was eleven, I got a uh, Ohio Scientific Inc. OSI C one P, great computer, sixty five hundred two processor, just like the Apple II, and it came with a manual, and the manual had all the machine language numbers in the back, all the the codes, and I programmed in raw machine language because I didn't have an assembler. Then I got an assembler and I put, oh, assembly is much easier. Then I, you know, I had basic built in and whatever. But, uh, you know, I did that and I feel like I've got a programmer head, but I didn't, it's not what I'm best at. Uh, and same thing, I studied graphic design in college. I really loved it. And um, when it came time to go into a field, I wound up veering towards, uh, you know, ultimately towards writing, even though I do a fair amount of design um, and did web design and design books and so forth. But I am not somebody who it made sense to go into a studio or try to start a studio and work because I don't have enough aptitude. I have some skill but not the aptitude to do that day in and day out. Now, writing, I can. I can write all the time, but I can't design or program all the time. You know that thing. You get into that mode with programming. Sometimes you're in the flow, and I know a lot of programmers who are really good at it, and they can be in that flow for hours or days <laughs> at a time, eating ramen and you know whatever. I can get in that flow for relatively short periods of time, and then it exhausts me. So I can't, I, with, with writing, I don't get worn out in the same way. That's, we are uh, extremely... Similar. <laughs> I mean, um, I went to college for design. I, I started programming on a PC junior in mm -hmm. assembly and basic. That's hilarious. And, you know, and I have, I, I can pick up just about any scripting language. I'm good with linguistics, like actual, like verbal entomology and everything or etymology. But, um, I, I don't excel. I, I've made enough money programming to mm -hmm. pay my bills mm -hmm. but it's not something i consider my brain really great at i'm like i can we do are the it same place <laughs> yeah if forced if i needed to make a living well let's say all freelance writing dried up and i couldn't get a staff job and it's like oh my god i need to support the family what am i going to do i could interview and show i have work i've got systems that are running for 15 years i built the first system at amazon i was there in uh, 96 97 i left because i thought the company was going to go out of business and i was <laughs> did not want to be there and i met my wife and i was like i can either have a relationship or work at this company i'd prefer to have the relationship we're still together this many years later very happy so i've got two kids i made the right choice did not make a million dollars did make a very happy life. And uh, and the people who stayed, some of them made a lot of money, not happy lives. So I'm, I feel like I made the right <laughs> outcome there. In any case, but the thing was at Amazon, like I was uh, young and cocky enough, I felt like I could do anything. And I was doing a lot of Perl and we had these great, they, everything at Amazon those days was programmed in C, not C++. This is 1996. 
and it was in C because the guy who built the systems, he was an older computer guy, and that's what he wrote in. So uh, there's no object. It was crazy. But so I built a system there using Perl that was off, uh, not a real-time system, that uh, matched it created sets of works. So we'd had all these ISBNs, but we didn't have, you know, you could have 50 ISBNs for different editions of Wizard of Oz. So I built a thing that would associate all works that see, or all books that seem to be the same work and put them together and then replicate the content we had for one for other editions. So all of a sudden we were able to populate a relatively small amount of reviews and other information uh, about one book to all the other books that were basically the same book. And I built that and it ran for... Uh, years um, before they replaced it. <laughs> so I felt very <laughs> proud of it. So I've done stuff like that, but like I didn't build Amazon's e-commerce system or work on it. That would have been so far beyond me. I can't do that. And with Stripe, I could do that today, right? You could all sit down <laughs> and use Stripe with PHP or Perl or whatever, Python. Uh, see, I love APIs. Mm, when yes, someone else does yes. all the crazy like actual work and I just get to pull the data and, and use their functionality in creative ways that maybe they hadn't thought of yet, that's no, what I excel cool. at. No, an, API, an API is a beautiful thing, and Stripes in particular I love because they're, it's so beautifully written and it just gets better over time and it's, it's sensible. But so I think if I had to, I could make a living as a programmer. I don't mean that like it's not – that almost sounds like I'm talking down to people who do it. It's like, oh, I could do your job. It's like, no, it would be very hard for me. It would be probably painful. I would come home at the end of the day and be <laughs> exhausted. It would not be the idea – and I would probably work as a programmer as long as I could in order to move up to a layer of management in which I could do project management and um, supervise uh, you know, systems. I'm very good at putting systems together, building systems and whatever. Um, and I am and having – after having spent real time as a programmer, I feel more comfortable working and say, like, you guys know what you're doing. I'm going to help us get all the pieces together, right? And I feel like, and I know people who, I have friends who've worked in positions like that who are actually competent managers who, um, you know, do that sort of connective tissue for the programmers. And they're there to support developers, not be the pointy-headed boss, but help, you know, them not have to worry about things that don't actually affect the good work that they're focused on doing. Um, I feel like I could have worked as a graphic designer too, but I don't think I am good enough. I mean, that's fundamentally, like, I know I have my repertoire and my level of creativity does not satisfy me compared to what the kind of work is I'd like to do. So designing a book, I could feel very comfortable with what I can do there within that framework, but I could not be producing posters and advertising material and all kinds of stuff day in and day out. So I think, I think writing turns out to be the thing that I like best that I'm good at. And it's um, a weird time that it's it's come and gone, but um, it would have been much easier 30 years ago to make a living doing what I'm doing because there were a lot more <laughs> full-time jobs. And I've gone through the you know the worst period in journalism ever, probably, <laughs> just about. Uh, and, uh, and it's kind of coming around. Rates have gone back up and, and things have changed. There's more hiring in the specific field I'm in. But um, this is kind of a, a unique time to be a journalist, and, and I've been enjoying navigating it even as it's exhausting to uh, keep everything afloat. I, I've never had anyone describe me so well as you describe you. That's so funny. I don't think he's right. Exactly. <laughs> we should well, hang out more. That, absolutely. The script, the scripting programming thing. I've talked to programmers about this. So like, what's the difference for you between PHP? It's different. You know, PHP and Objective-C, all you have to do, you know, there's object class. And you, you're doing, and I do object-oriented programming. I can do object-oriented PHP and object-oriented Perl. 
and I looked at Objective-C. Every time I pick it up, it's just within 10 or 30 pages. I try to read the Swift manual. I'm like, oh, I understand this. I'm going along. I'm like, oh, this isn't that bad. And then I'm like, oh, okay, I don't follow. All right, now I'm done. I just, <laughs> I, I, ha- I need to get a, um, like a shakabuku moment. You know, I need to go into a classroom and spend uh, weeks in an intensive course. And like six weeks in, I'm like, oh, that's it. And my brain will have rewritten itself with someone else's help. Well, see, and I've focused, I've focused more on programming than on writing lately. So I feel like I have done in programming what you've done in writing and with your understanding. It's just that with programming, I'm solving problems that other people don't necessarily know exist yet. Whereas with writing, you're doing research and learning about existing knowledge. Yes. And it's kind of it's it's the same mental capacity applied in very different ways. And I have a great admiration for the amount of knowledge that you have intentionally gone out and and absorbed. This is part of the freelance life, though, is because um, because I'm not on staff. Now, this is oh, so. This is a great advantage. I have some recurring gigs at MacWorld now, and I write the I uh, do the Mac the, the Mac nine one one answer. A column. I write those, and I do uh, the podcast with Susie Oaks, the executive editor. Uh, and those are sort of, um, I mean, those are like bits and pieces. But I don't have to pitch those. Like we sit down, we figure out topics, and we talk. Or um, you know, I'm getting questions from readers. But the private eye column I do. I, I started that before I was doing uh, more stuff for them. Uh, the uh, I don't have to pitch every one of those because that's the closest thing to being like staff. I tell Susie when I've got a topic or she'll ask if I want to write about something, but I can basically just write those. And this is the thing as a freelancer in general, I have to be constantly pitching, right? Coming up with ideas all the time, trying to find things that staff writers have not carved out as their territory or that have already gotten onto as a story. So I've written supremely eclectically for The Economist <laughs> because they have a really brilliant set of uh, staff that um, covers all kinds of things. And what will happen, this is my typical pattern at a publication. At the New York Times, I wrote for them regularly from about uh, 98 to 2004 or five. And their pay rate didn't get better. It got a little better, but they were paying, you know, 50 cents a word. And at some point, I'm like, it's just not, it's just, you know, I'm subsidizing you, writing for you um, by doing other work and, um, and their editorial shifts and so forth. But they had this thing called the circuit section, uh, which was a dedicated computer section. I don't know if you remember, did you ever see the New York Times during that period? It was like a, uh, every Thursday, I think. It was a separate, like, piece of, you know, folded piece of paper. <laughs> No, you know I'm not sure. I'm not is, sure. Right? I, I do recall, yes, but I was never a big newspaper reader, and that would have been my high school years. All right. Okay. So, yeah. So, this is a funny time. So, it was there was a point in which a lot of different newspapers, particularly, would have a pullout, either a, like multiple pages that were the computer technology section or an entire regular section. And The Economist is still doing technology quarterly every four months. They do this thing that's full of tech stories, even though they run them regularly. But these are more often forward thinking or bigger picture. So, anyway, the, the New York Times launched circuits. It's our tech section, right? And uh, I got involved very early and wrote. I don't know, sometimes every few weeks I wrote features and uh, I wrote one of the first, maybe the first major story about public Wi-Fi in 2001 when that, uh, February 2001 before Starbucks started rolling it out and all these things. Anyway, I bring this up because uh, the New York Times had very little technical staff in-house. They had a couple uh, writers, both of whom became friends, Pete Lewis uh, and uh, uh, Steve Manis, were their columnists, and uh, they had a few other people. And then circuits, they built up staff, like J.D. Bietersdorfer is still there. Uh, she's been there for, oh my gosh, I mean, twenty almost 20 years now. And writing, she did the Q&A, and then she's done features and has kept, you know, moved to different capacities there. I think it's still there. And uh, 
anyway, so but they had very little in-house expertise about esoteric stuff. They, they could write about certain kinds of computer industry things, and Steve Maness had come from the trades a bit, so he could write, you know, he used he was in an info world that he's, he wrote for PC World and um, anyway, so they had some expertise, but I was the guy from outside be like, did you know there's this weird thing going on with uh, a, a new Wi-Fi standard? They'd be like, oh, you should write about this. Or I'd be like, hey, did you know that um, – Oh, I don't know. I, this guy, these, I, I'm trying to think of stories I wrote that were interesting. Oh, here was one. It was uh, on the internet, nobody knows your dog. One of the favorite things I've ever written. <laughs> I'm at this conference, and uh, somebody quotes that line, that cartoon on stage. I had it on my refrigerator. It came out in 1993, July 93, that a cartoon appeared in The New Yorker about the internet. And my housemate at the time, he cut it out and put it on the refrigerator. So it's still in my refrigerator in 1999. And then The New York Times, that same week that I hear this guy say it on stage, he... So they quote it in two different um, articles. And then I see it other places. And I pitch my head and I say, you know, there's a story behind this cartoon. Let me write about that for circuits because it's become this like phrase everyone uses. And this is, again, this is 16 years ago and everyone was using it. Now it's ridiculous, right? So I contact the, uh, I, I knew the New Yorker cartoon editor because I'd written about some stuff with him before. Uh, Bob, uh, man, uh, uh, Bob, what can I say? Not Mank, uh, It'll come back to me. Bob, uh, Mankoff, Bob Mankoff, a great cartoonist in his own right. And he puts me in touch with the cartoonist, Peter Steiner. And we have this great conversation. And he's like, no one had actually ever called him or talked to him about the cartoon before. And the story ran. And I just was delighted with it. And it was so kind of inside, outside the radar. But what happens is over time, so by the time, you know, years roll by and we get to 2003 or four, and they, I think at some point, Circuit stops being a section because the papers contracted a little. It starts being like, a couple pages, three pages in the back of another section, then it sort of disappears. Now it's bits, like the online bits section they run is really kind of the, the cultural descendant of circuits with a gap of a few years. And 2005, it basically stopped writing between the pay and editors shifting and they're, they're having developed so much in-house expertise, they didn't need me anymore. They, they didn't need to hire a freelancer to do stuff that staffers were all over. So I keep finding – so for The Economist, I bring them quirky, weird stuff. And I'm like, robots and computer vision. Uh, Bitcoin is facing all these interesting technical pressures. Uh, did you hear about the sharing economy? They're like, yes, we have. What do you think about it? And I'm like, oh, what if, you know, why don't you write us 3,000 words on that? So, so you're literally off the beaten path as in going places no one already has a beat. This is – yeah. And so like <laughs> even on the space – they have a bunch of people who do space and physics. They have like high energy physicists who turn to be turn to journalists. Fantastic science bench at the Economist, as you can imagine. And I have written several science stories for them or, or space stories, which excites me because I'm finding things that they were unaware of because they're so weird. Like um, I wrote this thing; it turned into a chart. It was the satellites in orbit that are well past their deadline. <laughs> like their expiration date and when new ones are being launched. So we ran this thing with the graphics department, did this great thing. But I found like, you know, 15 satellites that are behind, you know, the GPS constellation of multiple satellites. And it was super fun. I wrote about, um, uh, this is what I'm still, I wrote, I've actually written again it again for a different publication from a different angle. But like the fact that we need plutonium, the isotope 238, which is a less dangerous, not a miss or not, it's not a, a weapons grade flavor of plutonium. We need that to explore deep space, but we don't make it anymore in America because it was a byproduct or extracted from a byproduct of the nuclear weapons industry, which doesn't really exist anymore. Nukes so, and communism have made a, 
a major impact on our technical technological advances in in so history. True. It's so true. It's one reason why we haven't made as many advances in nuclear fuel for peacetime uses because the nuclear weapons industry, as horrible as the stuff we were producing there was, had a lot of byproducts of trained staff, of things they tested, of labs, of facilities. Um, so anyway, I find stories like that, and they're like, "Yes, you should write about. Why don't you write about plutonium two thirty eight? That would be wonderful." And if I didn't find that story, I'd have nothing, you know, I'm not going to write about. So like the Pluto flyby, they're all over the Pluto flyby. Like everybody there, you know, there's seven different people on staff who probably know more about it than people except associated with the mission. So they wrote a you know piece about that. But writing about um, the piece I wrote associated with the plutonium story was about this dearth of upcoming deep space uh, like past Mars missions because of funding issues and so forth. And that was kind of off people's radar. And they're like, oh, this is great. You know, something their staff wasn't tracking and no one was really tracking and and I wrote that. So I have to be eclectic for them and for um, other publications. To, otherwise, there's just uh, – <clears throat> I did a long a story about parking apps for uh, Harry McCracken. He used to be at PC World. He's at Fast yeah, Company. I know McCracken. He's a great guy. I, not personally, but I'm very uh, familiar with his work. Terrific guy. And so I bring him the story. I'm like, did you know there are these new valet-style parking app companies? He's like, no. And I, bit, and I wrote this long piece about parking apps for uh, valet parking apps for Fast Company. So Nice. Yeah, this is this is my life. Is I find weird stuff and I repackage it in a way that editors might be interested in. I love it. You have uh, you have molded your world to fit your uh, thinking patterns. <laughs> I have to publish a correction. Those years would not have been my high school years. This would have been the years of my life where I was working very very hard to not think at all, uh, to silence my brain. Oh yes. The- through whatever means necessary, um, but I'm past that, and uh, and I'm we, glad we do share we do share a lot of um, proclivities, while not uh, successes in various areas. But anyway, do you remember enjoying the feeling of new email coming in? At this point, I honestly don't think that many of us do. Do you? No, be honest. Think about it. Yeah, that's that's what I thought. This episode of Systematic is brought to you by SaneBox. SaneBox moves unimportant emails out of the inbox into a separate folder so that you can actually get down to doing your work. There are more features than that, but that's just the basic idea. Get email that you don't need to see right now out of your way. Brett's been using SaneBox for a long time now himself, and he has referred so many people to the service that SaneBox actually had to check in with him and make sure that he wasn't, you know, doing anything funny. He's got well over a year of free service that he's received as a referrer because he has been so effective at suggesting SaneBox to people before they were sponsoring anything that he does. So that's why we're throwing out the rest of the ad read and just telling you, proof in the pudding. That is how effective SaneBox has been for Brett. Stop wasting time that you can't afford to waste. Go to SaneBox.com ESN to try SaneBox for free for two weeks. You don't have to give them your credit card or anything. And after the trial, systematic listeners will get $25 off their membership. That's the deepest discount you're going to get anywhere. Just use our referral link. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X.com ESN. Thanks to SaneBox for sponsoring all the great shows on ESN this week. This episode of Systematic is also brought to you by Casper, a revolution in mattress sales. Why go into a showroom? Why go into a store where they mark things up, change the names of things, and do everything they can to obfuscate the process of getting a mattress, getting one for an affordable price, and getting what you actually need? Brett has been sleeping on one of these for some time now, and the passionately engineered mattress featuring latex foam and memory foam, has truly offered him better nights and brighter days, just like the slogan you've heard on this podcast and various others. 
If the idea of buying a mattress online gives you the creeps, don't worry about it. You can sleep on this thing for 100 nights, and they have a no-hassle return policy. They'll even pay the return shipping. So go to casper.com systematic. Save $50 off your choice of Casper mattress. Terms and conditions apply. Thanks to Casper and SaneBox for continuing to support Systematic. And now, back to the show. It's time for our top three picks, which I almost, I almost regret because there are so many directions this conversation could go right now. But I do think that you are going to have some very interesting top picks, so I'm curious what your first one would be. Okay, I'm going to be a weirdo because I am. Uh, so my, my top pick is um, I'm sitting here with a book. It's a very special book. This book it was published in 1922, not first published. It's actually a 1922 edition of the Everyday Songbook. And I bought it recently. I paid about $40 to buy it and have it shipped to me. And the reason is this book contains the song Happy Birthday to You with music and lyrics, possibly the the first time those were put together. And it may affect, not, not my copy of the book, but this edition of the book, its discovery recently, may affect a lawsuit that will finally cause Happy Birthday, which remains under copyright protection. Uh, it may lose copyright protection uh, finally uh, in a lawsuit that's been going on since 2013. So I uh, this came out that there was a filing in the suit, got a lot of attention, that... Uh, this uh, uh, filmmaker who's making a movie about the song, uh, she sued because she did not want to pay royalties on something that she felt was clearly in the public domain. And Warner Chappelle, which is a division of uh, Warner Music, uh, you know, engaged in the suit and said, no, no, we have clear title to this thing. It was copyrighted in 1935. And it's a long and fascinating story. But I wanted, I, they mentioned in the revised filing that they had gotten a copy. They found in uh, some new documents that Warner Chappelle filed in the suit. They'd found a 1927 edition of this book that didn't have a clear copyright notice. The uh, lawyers found a 1922 version, which I have here a copy of at hand, that um, also lacks a copyright notice. And here's the thing. Before 1977 or until 1977, if you published something and it didn't have a copyright symbol and the person's name or a copyright, the word copyright, it was not official. It was not copyrighted without that. So it didn't have to be registered with the copyright office necessarily, but it had to have a notice. And this appears in 1922. And lacks a notice, and so it may establish a clear case that "Happy Birthday to You" has been in the public domain since 1922. So I can tell this isn't of um, financial interest to you, but of uh, more philosophical <clears throat> nature. Yes, I, I thought it might be. There aren't that many copies. Like I don't know how many copies extant exist of this book. It was published by. It was produced by a piano company in Chicago that made editions of the songs, the songbooks with like hundreds of songs, some in the public domain, some licensed. Like this one was ostensibly licensed, just incorrectly, uh, and and others. And um, uh, maybe there's a hundred copies that's in the world. There's one at a, a library in Pittsburgh. Uh, the lawyers I spoke to, lawyers, they got a hold of of one through booksellers. But this might be one of uh, ten copies of the first appearance. And so I thought it's not. Like, well, will be worth something someday? I don't think so. But I, I have followed this story closely enough. I'm like, I found a copy online before other people had clearly gone to search to find one. I bought it, and it will be an heirloom of my house, I'm sure. So I, I have to ask, how, how exactly, with, without divulging sources or anything, how did you find the book? Oh, I, I literally went to ABE Books and searched on Everyday Songbook because they had reproduced pages of it in this reduced, this this filing, and I punched it in. And the only copy ABE is uh, owned by Amazon, and it's uh, it works with like thousands of booksellers. And the only copy of the 1922 
book was in a Victoria, uh, British Columbia bookseller, which is funny because not very far <laughs> from me in Seattle. Uh, and as far as I know, there's no other copy for sale anywhere in the world. I looked on eBay, had 1927 editions, which wouldn't be useful. Um, <clears throat> so maybe people will be digging through old libraries and trying to find this to sell it or something. But uh, as far as I know, this was the only remaining copy for sale anywhere in the world, and I bought it. Nice. I, I did see your tweet when you when you posted the picture of it. It's very funny. I Copyright did. is a weird thing, and this is like an example of the weirdest of the, the that anybody cares about today from that long ago. Yeah, it's kind of a ephemeral area of the law, I think. <laughs> it's so crazy. <laughs> All right. So my first pick then is uh, it's a new newish um, markdown editor for iPad, Ooh. and. I, I don't do a lot of writing on my iPad, but when I do, it's almost in, entirely blogging. And uh, and as a blogger, I need to always have web links to whether it's apps or sources or whatever. And, uh, and there's a new app called Bisect, and it gives you a split view between a web browser and a markdown editor. And you can quickly, you can tap a link you can highlight some text in what you're working on, tap a link on the left and have it inserted as a markdown link on the right, or you can have it insert any link from the page as a reference link that you can then use while you're writing. And then it has all of the... The, the author told me uh, when he let me know about the app that he had based some of the features on a post I wrote a while ago about oh, cool. what I would want in a, in a powerful markdown editor. And he, he made a lot of it happen. In fact, as I was testing it, there are all these things that I always, when I test an iOS app, especially a text editor, there are all these things that I just wish would just happen without me having to think about it. And in Bisect, they almost all happened. Oh, my God. And That's you, great. You know, you're like, I wish it would work this way. And then it just does. That's what I love about a good iOS app. Or any app, really. But, uh, but yeah, Bisect is one I would highly recommend. I'll be writing it up for Mac, uh, Mac Stories shortly. But I figured I'd mention it here because it is a wonderful blogger tool. And then if you swipe to the right, you can move the text editor to the left and have the HTML preview on the right that scrolls with you as you work on your piece. It's an That's excellent blogger's tool. I'm a big fan of Markdown, and I, I try to teach people it all the time, um, especially <laughs> writers, where I'm like, look, you know, if you have to produce an HTML page, and all you're doing is embedding links, bold and italic, I can teach you in like five <laughs> minutes, and then you do not have to write in raw HTML or do some weird conversion. That's what my uh, my video for Peach Pit was about, uh, but I still owe them on the advance, because that didn't go so well. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Markdown, that makes fools of us all. It, it, is, uh, it is extremely useful. So, yes. Uh, and, and I don't know if you've ever seen my comparison chart, uh, the iText editors page. I think so, because I was looking, I was trying to find a good online markdown editor to recommend to writers when I was running the magazine, because I asked them if at all possible to submit in markdown format, and that turned out to be uh, <laughs> not as useful. Some people are not. It just doesn't work. So I'm, I believe I consulted that, because I was trying to find, uh, I think, what's the one... You haven't done an online, because there's a bunch of web-based ones, yeah, there are. which are quite good. And there's I think one I based on Stack Overflow's editor. Um, <sighs> I can't remember what it's called offhand. I'll, I'll throw it in the show notes. But yeah, that's the best one I've seen, because it does everything that I like about the iOS editors. 
you just have to have access to the internet and oh yeah. my god, I had no idea there's this many markdown editors or, or editors that support markdown. This is hilarious. It's good. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and that's all run off like a Google spreadsheet that people can contribute to, so it's pretty up to date. Um, and there are there are eighty plus active available editors that I know of. And that list, you know, things that are discontinued on the app store are removed from that list. So those are all currently developed apps. Um, and there are hey, a ton. Are you in the affiliate program for the app store? I hope you're getting, do you get of referral course credit? I am. Good. Okay. I couldn't, they hide the links now. So I'm looking at your link and I don't see the, oh, I see it now. Okay. Yeah. They, uh, I was like, please make money off. Giving <laughs> they, they, they contact me. I'm one of their, uh, the first people they contact when they make changes to the program because That's that nice. page does pretty well. That's good. I like, I have a site called ISBN.NU. That's a book price comparison site. I've been running one of my programming experiments since uh, 1999 and it is surprising. It's, it's, Declined a lot over the years. It had a, a very good year, uh, you know, like 10 years ago was the peak. But it's still, it's just a place you punch in. Uh, I've got uh, some databases of uh, up-to-date book information. And you punch in an ISBN or a book title or an author or some combination. And it goes and looks at like 15 bookstores. And it just, it's just money comes in. It's very nice. Yeah. I enjoy, I enjoy having produced it. I just kind of keep the plate spinning now. But um, it's a great little background uh, uh, income stream for uh, work I've done. You know, I put in hundreds and hundreds of hours in the past and it's paid off over time. Well, and that that kind of uh consistent background there was a there was a period between me trying to open my own design studio uh, slash ad firm and me becoming a freelancer uh, mm -hmm. where I made zero income for almost a year. Wow. And yeah. and scraped by and built up debt and things were horrible. Um and now I can go through the same kind of drought, but because of all these background sources of consistent income, mm -hmm. while it's not massive, it's enough to keep the lights on without me yes. having to pull out a credit card to pay a utility bill. Yeah, without ISBN.NU at, at various times kept me from having to go out and find a full time job like <laughs> uh, you know on demand uh, during weak points, and that's been it's been good. Uh, I like I like August and January best because that's when kids go back to school <laughs> right. and they like to buy books. All of a sudden, it's like wow, there are like four hundred books ordered today, and you know that's odd. Some of them are like the you know the uh, the nuclear engineer's guide to nuclear engineering fifty fifth edition uh, one hundred ninety three dollars. <laughs> I'm like yes, thank you. Nice. Just bought me lunch. Kid who bought that book out of this <laughs> All right. So what's your number two pick? Number two is, um, I'm, I'm trying to figure out whether I want to go conceptual or, I, I think I'm going to go conceptual again, which is uh, number two pick is electronic ignition disabling technology. <laughs> oh, I will explain why I'm laughing. Okay. Just, uh, on my block uh, in Seattle, uh, we had the oldest car on the block. We had the only car, uh, a twenty, almost twenty-year-old Honda uh, Civic that did not have uh, any technology that kept people from easily hot wiring and driving off. So it got broken into a bunch, and then it got stolen. It was disappeared for three weeks, and unfortunately, was recovered basically intact and our insurance company paid a small amount to get it fixed and whatever and we finally were just like oh my god we're gonna the car's gonna be stolen we put a club on it and the club was broken we're like the car's gonna be stolen again and again and again and we could put a fuel pump you know disabling thing but we're like look we should just get up to date with everybody on the street so we are our, our, our repair shop decided to start selling used cars they became a dealer we were their guinea pig and they got us a used honda fit with Ignition disabling technology. So it's not that they can't be stolen. It's just much, much harder. If you don't have the key with the chip in it, 
it's it's not impossible. You can social engineer dealers out of it and whatever. There's some great <laughs> stories in the past about that. But it suddenly is no longer the lowest hanging fruit. It's like the highest hanging fruit uh, on the block. And it's not an expensive car. There are more expensive cars. So you know that joke about I don't have to, you know, a bear is chasing us. Oh, let me stop. I'm going to put my I shoes on. I only have to run faster yeah. than you. Right. So we were had the slowest running car and now we're, you know, we have a high rate of car theft in Seattle relative to other crime. You know, violent crime is low. Property crime isn't bad. But we have, we have like a substantially elevated car theft rate here. So that technology is one of my favorite things. We just got the car a couple months ago. It's a great car. Didn't cost a fortune. We got a trade in for our old thing. And it's our, you know, our dealer is our shop and we love our shop. We've been there for two decades. Uh, and now our car is not theft proof, but it is highly theft resistance. It's like 500 times harder to steal it than our old car. <laughs> Just don't lose your key. <laughs> oh, geez. You know, th that's the scam. You have to go to the dealers and they will charge you anywhere from $160 to $200 for one key. I have um, I have an Audi TT convertible mm -hmm. and uh, it has uh, the engine cut off if the key doesn't register properly. Yes, yes. And I was given faulty keys. In oh, fact, geez. when I first got the car, yeah, I bought it used and when I put a new stereo into it, because it had like a six disc changer and I no longer own CDs. Oh my gosh, um, but I put the the new stereo in and it turned out that it had a GPS tracker built in. Like someone had installed a third party GPS tracker behind the stereo. Into the, oh my God. Right. And That's it only terrifying. came with one key, meaning oh that someone out there had the key oh coded God. to the car and a that GPS tracker. So I, I disabled all of that and I went That's and I, <laughs> I, I paid the like $250 to get a new set of keys coded yeah, to yeah. it. Yeah. And now one of them is faulty. So it, should I have to, uh, yeah, if I want to spend another 250 plus dollars, complain to Audi, go to the, um, the regional sales director for the actual, uh, you know, for Audi, the company who makes Audi is Audi. It makes made by, isn't is it Audi though? Is it GM? It, who's the division? But no, sometimes when you have a problem with technology that they're supposed to back, even if they didn't make it, they will sometimes talk to a dealer and just say like, oh, for Christ's sake, because they solve this problem. With this Volkswagen, guy. I just remembered. Oh, Volkswagen, yeah, yeah. But uh, if they have good customer service, they'll sometimes help you with it. And, or the dealers maybe help it. I don't know. Did you, mm -hmm. went to a, did you go to a licensed place to get the keys cut or did you go to a to a back I went to the bar? dealer. I went back to the yeah. dealer and they're licensed. Sure they fix it for you. Because that's part of what you're supposed to do is they <laughs> you go there and they get you on the gravy train because you lose your key, you still have to go back and... Except uh, yeah. for my dealer is two and a half hours away from me. Oh, jeez. Can you send them a key? Oh, you can't send them a key. I had to they they there, always right? need it for more than 24 hours, which would involve oh. a hotel stay. Pain, yeah. This is, uh, this, is the, yeah, this is the great part of the future. You have a car that can't be stolen. You can't drive it either. Well, see, the thing is, if I put it into first position and I wait for the, the security cutoff light to stop yeah. blinking then I know it will start. And if it doesn't stop blinking, I can just flip it off and flip it back on. Okay. And within three tries, it will always stop blinking. Oh, that's funny. But I'm that's never funny. guaranteed that the first time I try to start it, it will go. Which can be embarrassing when you have a nice-looking sports car and everyone's watching you and they want to hear it start up and hear the engine and it just dies twice on yeah. you. That's <laughs> it, it feels like, I don't know, I, I feel undignified at that point.
This is a this is a definitely modern problem. Is cryptography? It's like all right, you know, you don't own that chip. That chip's owned by Volkswagen. They have the dealers <laughs> license it. They have special equipment. You can go to a third party, but sometimes those don't work. I read a lot of reviews. You pay half as much, and they're crummy, often, or they won't they won't guarantee anything. Um, but the advantage is, you know, ostensibly. Did you see the New York Times? Here's a good link for show notes if you want. Is New York Times a couple years ago when our car was, uh, was it summer last summer? I forget. I think it was oh, just over a year ago. Uh, our Honda Civic stolen. Times runs this story saying, uh, hey, did you know that car thefts are down 95% in New York City over 20 years? And I'm thinking, what's the deal? And then they show the car theft rate by model. The Accord, which is one of the most popular cars, was stolen like crazy until and there's this drop-off where the electronic ignition disabling tech is put in. And the basic story is it used to be really easy to hotwire any car, and now uh, you, you can still, there are rings, centrally located rings of car thieves who get uh, crypto t- equipment and they break the technology and they'll make car, you know keys for specific cars and go out and steal them and so forth. But the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, crime of opportunity, someone walks by, oh, there's a car, I need to go shoot up someplace, which is what happened to our car, I will steal it and then you know drive it someplace quiet and shoot up and then abandon it or sell it or strip it for parts. That doesn't happen because uh, because you you can't just be an average person, an average thief and do it. You have to have like, um, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a key or something. But I was stunned. I was like, our car was stolen. I'm looking at this thing. I'm like, oh, well, this is what we need to do. But it's still 90, 95% drop in car theft in New York City. Yeah. Astonishing. So, well, some, so there is a benefit. It's just causing you a hassle. That's for sure. Yes. Oh, well, it's highly effective to not be able to hotwire a car anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So. But it, sucks when, it sucks when the key doesn't work. <laughs> All right. So my number two is the uh, Nifty Mini Drive. I uh, I was I was beta testing an app called Jettison, and uh, it's it it automatically ejects your drives when you sleep your your laptop, which is very handy. So you can just close the cover of a Mac top um, MacBook, and it will eject any attached external drives, so you don't open it up and get all those uh, messages about this drive was improperly ejected, etc. And uh, one of the new features in it was uh, SD card ejection. And I had always considered SD cards something that you used to get uh, photos off a camera, which was very naive of me. Uh, so I looked into it after starting to beta test this and found the Nifty Mini Drive. And it gives me a 128 gigabyte drive in the SD card slot on my MacBook Pro. Mm. And... It's it's exchangeable were I to buy multiple 128-bit mini SDs, uh, but it's basically a, it's a, like a, a case, a container that fits fills the slot. That's cool. And yeah, so I mean, it, it fits flush with the MacBook, and it is it's it's invisible basically. Oh, you need a little. So yeah, yeah, I see. There's a tool to take it out. Right. It comes with a little hook tool ah. that you can pull it out with, and. With oh, something like great. Jettison, you don't have to mount and un- mount and unmount it. It just works, and so it's 128 gigabyte. I can use it for um, like Time Machine or as external storage or just additional storage. It, I, I'm liking it. That's great for right for. I mean, if you have a, um, I used to have a 256 gig MacBook Air that I I loved, and then I ca- I wanted to go to Retina, I wanted a newer machine, and I wound up getting a, a 12 inch MacBook, so I can't I can't use this. But and I, the 12 inch I have a 512 gig SSD in it, 
but I would be buying this in a hot second if I still had that MacBook Air because I kept running right up against that edge. Yep. It'd be like I have like 251 gigs. And I'm like, all I need is to put my photos someplace and where I have it all the time. But I never thought about that. That's a great idea. Can I say that 512 MacBook Air was still and now I have a Retina MacBook Pro. But mm-hmm. that 512 MacBook Air was my favorite computer ever still is. I wish they would just to put retina in it. Like I like, <laughs> I like the 12 inch MacBook. I gotten used to it. I, I could have returned it. I tested, I was, got it for review. I bought one cause they weren't doing review units when I needed them. And I had that 14 day window and, uh, or 30 now, I forget. I think it's four, well, 14 or 30, whatever. So I, and I reviewed it and then I'm like, Oh, I want to keep it. And then I was like, you know, I, I want this. I really like all the features and I want the retina. I don't want to go back to standard display and I'll cope with the keyboard. And I, I've got, I don't hate the keyboard. Some people despise it. Uh, J- Jason Snell of six colors is just actually in my house. I will see him again in a moment. He's uh, traveling with his family. And um, <laughs> he looked at it. He's like, Oh, I hate that. He hates the key. He cannot stand it. He likes everything about it except the keyboard. And uh, we were both talking and, and we both expect like the Rev B keyboard for the 12 inch MacBook is going to be different. I'm pretty sure, you know, it'll, he, he, his prediction is uh, Thunderbolt three, with USB-C connector in yeah. the next version, which makes sense, and then uh, and then a, a new keyboard. But they don't have to change much else. Maybe they'll put in two USB-C connectors. They might. I don't know. But they certainly uh, – the, the keyboard's the thing I've heard almost everybody now is either concerned about it, doesn't want to get it because of it, or if they've tried it, uh, a good hunk of people do not like it. I have to confess that the most appealing thing to me right now as an owner of a, a Retina MacBook Pro who's very satisfied with it the most appealing thing to me about the MacBook is the new trackpad and the uh, yeah. the pressure sensitivity. <clears throat> it's it's neat and weird. It's I'm still getting used. <laughs> I don't use any apps that are taking advantage of it yet, but I uh, it's quite nice, especially because I've had mechanical trackpads fail or you know. Do you have over time. Uh, Do you use Better Touch Tool? I do. I haven't turned. Oh, does it store? You know, it's funny. I use it. Does it actually support the latest now? versions? <gasps> does it, it? The latest versions <sighs> do support support uh, hard press. All right, I'm gonna have to mess with that because yeah. that was just we were actually talking about it last night. It's like, what can you do? That's John Moltz, who you know, it's for MacWorld and other places. He uh, host of many podcasts. Um, he uh, was over and was like, uh, "What do you do with Force Touch?" And we're all sitting around going, uh, "Nothing, nothing yet." Like, you use certain apps or you yeah. do this. So better touch tool is it. first. First, anytime a new input device comes out, I always look to better touch tool because he's always on it. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, I've been using that since uh, I wanted to get back some of the um, the swipe up, swipe down stuff. I yeah. installed that, and I've been using it for a year or more. It's great. I couldn't live without it. All right. So, what's your number three? Uh, I'm going to recommend. I recommended this on other podcasts before, but I, I feel like it's got staying power, so I want to recommend it again. And it's Nuzzle. Do you use Nuzzle? Yes, I love Nuzzle. Nuzzle is the best new thing. So N U Z Z Z Z E L, and um, it's the best thing I've put on my iPhone. I mean, I you know this the CEO is on uh, Twitter, uh, a guy named Abrams, uh, Jonathan Abrams, I think, and he retweets praise for it. I mean, you know, which is which he should. But I'm always amazed. Other people are saying like it's not hyperbole, and I've done it myself. I'm like, it changes the way I read news online everywhere. Well, so many people have tried to do this. <clears throat> They did it right. I mean, part of it is they're not doing the Apple thing, which is we're going to tell you the best way. And maybe this will work for from 65% to 97% of people. And for some people, it's not. And that's too bad. And that's kind of the Apple thing. Like, we picked an approach. It's simple. And there's almost no way to modify it. And like the news app for iOS 9 will be that way. It's, right. it's not going to – it'll – conform to you but if you don't like how it works that's it you find something else nuzzle the fact that you can set thresholds so i have if seven or more people i follow uh 
link the same story, only then will it buzz my phone and then it will only do it like up to 15 times a day. It has some limit, right? But I want, uh, like on the website, it's different. If you go to the app, I have it set to three plus people. Um, the fact that I can view it by time. Oh, and I should explain to listeners. What it does is you feed it your uh, Twitter feed and you can also add Facebook or do both. And it just pulls up links and it looks at who in your feeds are linking to the same stories. And it seems to do a very good job in deduplicating. So if it's different URLs but the same story at the destination, it seems to map those, which is great. Um, because I don't get duplicates when there's you know different paths to a story. And uh, and so it, instead of me, this is like my RSS, right? I bet you use it the same way. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't use RSS anymore, really. And um, But I use this because this tells me what people I know are pointing to as something interesting. And I almost always want to read the stories that get the seven that, that buzz my phone because that's almost always an intersection of enough different people I know. And uh, when I just pull up the app for something to read, I'm like, oh, what's interesting? I scroll through. It's always stuff that I find fascinating. But it's not, I want to say... It's not an echo chamber. Not it's not just even though it's because people I follow. I think I'm following a diverse enough group of people, like geographically and even let's say ethnically, like people who don't look like me, right? Um, and gender and like I try to follow a lot of different people, so I'm not hearing the same thing said. So I get stories that I don't even see in my feed, but clearly people I follow are linking to, and they show up in Nuzzle. So I get to read stuff that's outside of my let's say my comfort area. I'm reading stuff about different political opinions, different body types, and it's great. I use um, I use Sanebox to filter my email, mm. and most uh, news aggregation services that send me digest emails I filter. Mm -hmm. But Nuzzle's email digests <laughs> are even like I find yes. myself clicking most of the stories in them, and I still use RSS for single author blogs, people like individuals where I care about everything they write. But when it mm -hmm. comes to multiple author blogs, especially things like Slate and uh, and even linker, more link heavy blogs like Daring Fireball, I tend to depend on Nuzzle to pick out and filter the ones that are actually of the most interest to the demographic that I've chosen on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And it actually makes me curate my Twitter following or follow the people I follow more than I used to curate my RSS feeds. Very interesting. I like it. I, I nuzzle. I don't know. It always gets it right for me with a, just a minimal amount of setup. It's always showing me news that is both pertinent to my interests and important for me to know. That's good. This is news that's pertinent to my interests. You can say that, and we're not even we're not even uh, drinking. I mean, not even drinking. We're not even uh, joking. Drinking. <laughs> we're not drinking either. We're not even joking. That it's like it. It's. I don't. I don't find many new tools that are like really indispensable to me. I mean, sometimes you know, like I could talk about InDesign, which I've been using for. I don't know, 15 years, how long it came out, and it's gotten better and better. And like, so when I need to do something like layout an ebook that's going to be in PDF and whatever, I love InDesign. It's gotten so much better, so much easier to use. But that's like a, that's like, you know, hey, I got a slightly better hammer. My hammer got better. It's really good now. I really like the newest hammer. Nuzzle is like a totally different thing. It actually makes my life better in terms of how I am aware of things that go on in the world. And that is, I think, in the last couple of years, I can't think of anything that's had as much impact on how I get and interpret news as that. Very nice. Yeah, they did it. Quick, quick side question: Were you a Quark guy? Oh yeah. Well, I was, it was interesting. I went to. Uh, I started doing DTP in 1985. Woo! 
with PageMaker 1.0. They had that at my high school. My journalism teacher, very forward thinking. She got us early Macs and PageMaker 1.0, and I was a typesetter at my high school newspaper. We had an old typesetting, optical digital typesetting system, uh, which was really funky. And we upgraded to that, and so I set type on the uh, in this DTP system. Then I got to college, and the graphic design program I was in was Quark Express 1.0 based. So I could use both in our my college paper was PageMaker. So I used both <laughs> uh, PageMaker and Quark. I was I was ecumenical, although I preferred Quark because its typographic control got better faster than PageMaker's. And I used both of them side by side, and then PageMaker died and InDesign came out, and that was the end of Quark. Clearly an entirely other podcast. <laughs> That's right. De- desktop publishing <laughs> programs we have used. I've used them all. Waxboards and Gutenberg. Color, okay, colors, <laughs> I've, yeah, I've, I've cut, I've used knives, I've used wax, I've used colors, Letraset Color Studio, I've used a Ready, Set, Go layout. Anyway. All right. So my last pick is a new app just hit the app store today as we're recording, which is August 6th. Um, it's called Taptronome. Mm. And I, I have some favorite metronome apps for iOS. And uh, this one is the simplest, most intuitive gesture based metronome that I've yet experienced. Uh, it's a simple app that you can. You can adjust the speed of the metronome simply by, you know, up, down swipes. You can set uh, uh, duplets and triplets, and um, you can choose your time signatures, and you can have it emphasize beat one or not. Uh, It gives you visual beats and your choice of click markers, and you can easily, with a double tap, just tap in a tempo. And it will pick it up and run with it after you, you know, tap four or five times. It'll show you the average of your tap speed and just uh, set itself to that. And that is, I mean, most of the apps I've used can do that. This just makes it something I can use just with my left hand off to the side without having to tap any specific buttons or anything. It's all gesture based, which is what I love. And there's a watch version coming soon. It's awesome. So I don't know. I don't know if you, I don't know if you need uh, a metronome, but it sounds like your son might enjoy it. I I don't, but it's useful. Yeah, I like that. Well, it's good use for uh, taptic feedback. Yeah. Or or haptic. I mean, sort of the bit 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 on your wrist. That would actually. I don't think any of the current watch well, capable. Yeah, I don't think any of the, too. Yeah, that would that would be cool to just have the buzz on your wrist, especially for like drummers and people that play instruments loud enough that it's hard to hear a metronome anyway mm-hmm. yeah all right cool um well yeah so that's the top three and we're at an hour and ten so i should wrap up <laughs> i do talk it's true no I, I this was great i loved it um you can be found on twitter as glenn f g-l-e-n-n-f and uh you you <laughs> following your favorites is actually really fun because oh. you, I think you pay as much attention to Twitter as you do spend time tweeting anything. I'm a, I'm a curator or something. I, I keep wishing there was a way to get a digest of me because a lot of people <laughs> don't want to follow me or they mute me, which is fine because I tweet too much. But I retweet. I have a lot of conversations. If we intersect with people who know each other, uh, I, I look much more voluble than I am. So Because uh, <laughs> a lot of what I do is talking with people and not doing, you know, at. So if you and I know 50 people in common, I'm talking at you all the time, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you are you are an excellent curator, so I recommend following that account. 
And you can also be found at glennf.com, same spelling. And then you have your Take Control books, which I'll link in the show notes. Is there an easy URL for your books? Uh TakeControlBooks.com is probably best. They've got a new website, up-to-date and fancy-free for 2015, and it's uh, much easier to find stuff. They, they uh, spent a long time. They're very deliberative at the tidbits and Take Control world to get things just right because they're a small organization, and they don't want to waste time you know, trying stuff that doesn't work. So they, uh, they just did a big overhaul that I think is wonderful. You can just go there and punch in Glenn, and you can find my books. And they have been pumping out great books lately, oh everything God, from so The good. Watch to... Text expander to one password. There was something new I think just came out yesterday. I don't, I, I don't remember what it was, but yeah, it's been frequent. All right, and then uh, I will link some of your articles from The Economist and Fast Company, and and on the internet nobody knows you're a dog. <laughs> and I am Brett Terpstra. I am at brettterpstra.com and TT Scoff everywhere else. Um, not hard to find if you remember TT Scoff. And that was episode 147 of Systematic. Thanks for being here, Glenn. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. I, I, I'm glad you agreed to do this. This has been a blast. <laughs> I appreciate it. All right. And we'll see everybody next week. Thanks for listening.